Our reading this morning is James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. While you're turning to this passage, let me just say that at Village, the Bible is central to everything that we do. The Bible is God's primary way of speaking to his people, and it shapes everything we believe and everything we do. Let's hear from the Lord this morning. James chapter 4, verse 1 through 12. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose if the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Welcome to Village South. Uh, my name is Nathan Brown. I'm one of the leaders here at our church. I'm grateful uh, to be here. I'm grateful that you are here. Uh, guests, I just want to specifically just uh, welcome you as well. We're glad you're here um, also. Uh, there's a few things I just want to bring to your attention this morning. Uh, first, our pastor, Andrew Elder, is uh, currently away. He's in the middle of his sabbatical time. He will return next month to us, so we're looking forward to his return. Uh, please be in prayer for him and that he doesn't get lost anymore while he's uh, cycling all over other countries. Um, second, I just wanted to thank you all for the donations that you made last month to the South Belfast Food Bank. Uh, I took the donations off, uh, dropped them off this last week, and we had about 80 pounds of items, uh, which is great. Um, it's amazing. It's going to help a lot of families. Um, this partnership that we have with the food bank is, uh, is great because it allows us to connect with something that's already good that's happening in our city. And so if you missed out on last month's uh, donation no worries. Uh, we do this at the end of every month, so you'll be hearing more about that in the weeks ahead. Uh, lastly, I would just ask you to be in prayer for uh, New Orleans. Um, uh, New Orleans is special to my family because we've spent about a decade there. Um, and if you aren't aware, they had a hurricane that struck last Sunday. Um, it's a Category 4, a um, lot of damage. Um, we, we, know, we know hundreds of people from New Orleans, and um, just the early part of last week, we just spent most of it just making sure everyone made it out alive. And as far as I know, every, all of our friends, all of our people that we love are, are okay, but they're coming back to a lot of damage. Um, they're saying the electricity may not be on for a couple of weeks, uh, which is pretty brutal when the 
there's no air conditioning, and it's about 35 degrees um, all, all, all day, so it's just pretty brutal. So if you'll just be in prayer for them, uh, that just would mean the world to me, um, all, of, all of our friends and family there in New Orleans. So thank you so much. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Uh, Heavenly Father, I just thank you uh, that you are here among us, that you, that you love us with an everlasting love. Uh, thank you for being a good God. Um, this passage today is, is, is difficult. Uh, it's dealing with conflict, Lord. And we just, we just know, Lord, that you want us to be a unified people, uh, people that can reconcile with one another. And I just pray that today, that if there is any tensions that exist among us, Lord, that you would allow us to reconcile, to seek that wholeness that you call us to, Lord. And that is my prayer this morning. In your name I pray. Amen. Uh, this morning, I, I'm reminded as we go over this passage of uh, something that happened when I was a young child. It's something my family uh, doesn't allow me to forget, specifically my sister. Um, so I grew up uh, with uh, my family, and I have one sibling. It's an older sister. She's five years older than me. And, uh, you know, family can be one of these things, and specifically sisters, brothers and sisters, can be a great source of joy. They can also be a great source of frustration, aggravation, and agitation, right? Um, and so as a, I was around seven or eight, the specific situation, uh, my sister, is, like I said, is five years older than me, and so she's 12, 13. She's kind of old enough to be my babysitter. Um, and so my, my mom is currently um, at working during the summer months while my sister and I are at home. And uh, you can understand the power dynamics kind of at play there with an older sister. She's the one making the rules. She's the one who's going to watch. We're going to watch what I want to watch. We're going to eat what I want to eat. We're going to do what I want to do. And that was fine for the first day. Uh, but as the weeks progressed, my frustration began to grow with, with my sibling. And so uh, I don't really remember much of what happened, but it's being told so many years that this is the story that I've heard um, apparently when I was, like I said, about seven or eight, I had reached the tipping point with my sister. I had had enough, and I had waited all day, and so I de- developed this kind of devious uh, scheme that when my mom got home, this was my plan. I was going to get a wooden spoon from the kitchen, and I was going to go upstairs to the bathroom and spray some, some water in my face, and I just started like beating my, my body with the wooden spoon, and so I had all these red marks all over my body. And my mom had just gotten home from a long day work, long day of working. I'm sure she was exhausted. And I go into my sister's room where she was behaving herself. She was being quiet to herself, reading a book or something. And, and I go in my room and I just start screaming. And I start getting the wooden spoon again and just hitting my, my side and belly with the wooden spoon. I said, Stop hitting me! Stop hitting! Why are you doing this to me? Stop it! I didn't do anything! Sure enough, my, my mom runs up the stairs to her room, opens the door, sees the fake tears in my eyes, sees the red on my face, sees the red all over my body, looks at my sister, and that's when the discipline uh, comes. And it was vengeful, it was evil. And my family, specifically my sister, never allows me to forget that. I don't know why. The truth eventually came out. My mom has never trusted me again. I don't know why. But that's the thing with siblings, right? Um, they can be such a source of joy, but they can be, man, they can be such a, a strong sense of grief and frustration and pain. Um, the brothers and sisters in Christ in our church are not much different sometimes. Um, and that's the truth. Conflict is every single place that you go. You turn on the TV and there's conflict. 
If you had a mom or a dad or a sibling, you know conflict from an early age. If you went to school, conflict. If you grew up in Belfast or Northern Ireland, you know about conflict. If you uh, liked someone, dated someone, married someone, you know conflict. Um, So we shouldn't be surprised when we um, are surrounded uh, by the people of God and we don't necessarily always get along with one another. Um, and it's also easy for us as a, as a church, as, as people, to believe that the early church didn't really struggle with the same things that we do. That just overnight, this church just kind of started in Israel, and these thousands of believers just had perfect theology, a perfect love for one another. But we know when we read the book of Acts, when we read the New Testament letters, that they struggled with the same things that we do. They struggled with maintaining unity. They struggled because sometimes they wanted to fight. They gossiped about one another. Uh, some people had an air of superiority and in their Jewishness or their gender or their upbringing they had in religion or, or the class that they belonged to. They struggled sometimes with their philosophy of ministry and how they would specifically reach their city with the gospel message. Um, the, the, church, the church is a messy place because we're a messy people. We're sinful. We're, we're, we're messed up. And we could fall into the trap of believing that in some ways that we're maybe better than the early church. Uh, maybe we're, we've advanced, we're more enlightened, we've progressed. But that's simply not the case. Because if you're a part of any church for any period of time, you're going to find conflict at some point. And uh, just so we're focusing on this today, I just want you to know that today's scripture might hit you exactly where you're at today. It might hit you right between the eyes, like, man, I'm dealing with this. I need, I need help with dealing with this conflict with someone within the church. But for many of us, this is something that you just need to save. Let's put it in our back pocket and save it for another day because we all will struggle with conflict at some point. Let us look into James 4 a little bit more closely here today. When we look at St. James, when, when we begins the section of this uh, chapter 4, he says this, what causes quarrels... And what causes fights among you? Now, I'm always one to kind of push the context. Let's understand the context of what's happening here. Um, I think it's very important when it says among you for us to understand what he's saying here. He's not talking about like an interpersonal conflict with himself. Um, what's causing these fights that exist among you? He's, he's not talking about the, uh, maybe you remember the cartoon with the, the good angel on one shoulder and like the demon on the other, and they're kind of fighting for this person's decision making. It's, it's not like that at all. Uh, what James is talking about here is when he says among you, that, that you in the Greek is plural, and so it's very easy for us to understand that he's, he's talking about the church community here. So he's asking, why is this conflict happening in the church? Why is this taking place? Why is there so much friction here between brothers and sisters? Now, this could be from a ton of different issues, and I thought it might be helpful for us just to consider a few the first is that it could stem from us just simply having different perspectives on how to proceed with a decision or an issue. Or as you know, when you have different personalities that go into a, a situation, oftentimes it's like oil and water. They, they don't really mix that well. Different personalities can be kind of create some tension there. Perhaps it stems from some inflexibility about issues, not because we care so much about the truth, but because we so desperately want our way. Or maybe it's because we are highly critical of decisions that are being made, not because we want what is best for each other, but what is actually best for ourselves. Or this one uh, kind of stings a little bit. We're highly critical of decisions because we desire to make ourselves look better, 
Um, we want to say that we want to uh, give the appearance that we're wiser, we're more discerning, we're more intelligent. Um, or one of my personal favorites uh, is when we choose to be passive aggressive for Jesus. Um, now, that's pretty common all over the world, uh, but in Northern Ireland, uh, just in my year here, that's something that is very common. And that we, 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 there's a tension that takes place, and instead of addressing it, working through it, we will walk out in resentment, we will act stubbornly, we'll blame other people. Or perhaps it's just that we're blinded by a desire just to be right all the time. We just want to be right. Um, as I started kind of encouraging my children with this, just because it's right doesn't mean it's the right thing to say. I'll always ask them, is it, is it true? Is it kind? Is it wise? Is it loving? Um, so today we're going to look more closely at the reason why these conflict, conflicts happen within the church, and then later we're going to dive into some, some underlying reasons on why that takes place. But I think it's very important for us to kind of start with the building blocks. Let's start with the basics here. Let's, let's talk about community because James directly connects conflict happening within that church community. So let's ask the question, what makes a community? What makes a community? What shapes it? What forms it? What creates it? What unites it? Um, because every single community has something that unites them. Just think about that for a moment. Uh, most often when we think of a community, we think of like, the neighborhood. We think of a close-knit community, and there's this prevailing sense that everyone has each other's backs, that if there's something that happens along the way, that we know that our neighbor is going to be looking out for us. Um, but then there's what we're most familiar with is communities that are built around kind of similar interests. Uh, fantasy football is starting up. Uh, it's just around the corner. And uh, there are so many sites, there's so many online messages, uh, message boards, there's so many uh, things that you can find out whatever you want to about the upcoming season, and then the kind of the community that's built around, oh, your player is horrible, oh, your player is so good, and then, uh, you know, there's communities that are centered around food. You've probably heard of the phrase being a foodie. Uh, there's the, uh, there's so many cycling community where, um, I don't know, they probably talk about the newest trends in Lycra or, um, you know, anything, everything can be a community. It can be centered around your hobbies. It can be centered around your vocation, your politics, uh, your religion, um, volunteering groups that do things, great things in the city, or groups that just want to change their city for the better. Um, and that's the truth, that every community has a common unity. Every single community has a common unity. And so we need to ask, what is ours? As a church, what is our common unity? What is ours as a church community? Because what we need to be very much aware, this needs to be the forefront, what unites us as a family of God? Because if it's politics, I'll be the first to lock the door and never come back. Like, there's no use for it for God. If it's, um, if it's because we're the cool church in Belfast and all the guys have, like, really cool beards and drink craft beer, what, 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 what use does God have for us? If it's because of the class that we belong to, that we're all, you know, part of the working class, or we're all the, you know, upper middle or whatever, we've, we've, we've missed it. We've missed it. What is uniting us as a community? What is uniting us? What is that common unity? It must be under the banner of Jesus Christ. Because he is what unites us and he is what connects such an uncommon group of people. Uh, my wife and I have been watching the, uh, the, the Chosen 
uh, series over the last couple of weeks. If you haven't seen it, it's great. Um, it basically just follows the ministry of Jesus and, and the, the, the disciples just beginning to take, the, begin the process of following after Jesus, and you see the miracles, and you see the teachings, and it's just it's class. Um, but one of the things that's been such a good reminder for me is just seeing all the different types of people that Jesus brings to the table, um, that, that he calls to be his disciples. You have people of all different kind of economic classes. There were women who were following Jesus in a time where um, women did not follow and, and, and learn from rabbis at the time, the religious teachers at the time. There were people of different sides of the political spectrum. You had, on one hand, you had Simon the Zealot, whose whole mission and desire was to see the Romans forcefully overthrown. He was a terrorist, essentially, that he was focused on getting the, the Romans out of their country completely, and let's make it as unstable and as un, unkind to them as possible so that they will be miserable and leave this place. On the other end of the spectrum, you had Matthew, the tax collector, who basically was propping up this Roman system of oppression by collecting taxes from his own people. And so that's just such a good uh, thing for us to understand today, that only Jesus has the power to unite such a, a wide and vastly different group of people. Jesus is the only one who can truly unite friend and foe, oppressor and oppressed, um, rich and poor, nationalist with loyalist. Um, R- Russell Moore, who is the, the founder of the Sorry, he's the president of the Ethics and Religious Commission in the, in the U.S. Um, he, I remember he wrote a letter to the editor of the Washington Post uh, about five or six years ago, and he was basically calling out white U.S. Southerners um, who were believers to stop having such a loving relationship with the Confederate flag. And one of the things I'll always remember about that letter that he wrote in, in the Washington Post was he made this connection that um, as a Christian, this is what he said, I have much more in common with a Nigerian female believer who, who has a different language, a different life experience, um, different uh, culture completely than me. I have much more in common with that female believer on the other side of the world than I do my next door neighbor who doesn't know Jesus Christ that I have much more in common with that person because that is the truth of it. As Paul stated in Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The only way for any church to continue living out its purposes for Christ and its generation is for it to be completely centered in its unity that is found in Jesus Christ. Because everything else... Everything else in our culture, everything will fight for that place at the pedestal and what unites us. Um, one of my favorite people in the whole world uh, was a man in New Orleans named Cedric Christmas. And uh, he and I had a special brotherhood. Um, he was African-American. He's about 25 or 30 years older than me. Um, and his life was one that was marked by trauma, abuse, difficulty, and uh, one of the ways he coped with his life was he drank very heavily. In his 30s, one night he uh, began drinking so heavily that he doesn't remember anything. He woke up a month later in the, in the hospital. Um, he was essentially so drunk one night that he passed out on his way home and landed on some rail tracks 
and a train literally ran over him. It was a miracle that he survived. He lost both of his legs above the knees. He lost several of his fingers, a lot of damage. Um, He was in a medically induced coma. The doctor said that, that he doesn't know how he survived. It was a miracle that he survived. And so this guy who I should have really nothing in common with, he lives in the neighborhood that we want to plant a church in in New Orleans. And we, we end up, uh, the way the Lord worked it out is that we, we were planting in a place across the street from the poor, one of the poorest neighborhoods in New Orleans called Bunch Village, and he was from the neighborhood. And Christmas, uh, we see him kind of uh, riding his little motorized wheelchair um, down the road, and we start having a conversation with him, and he eventually starts coming to our church, our gatherings, and so uh, we become friends. Uh, we learned that he can't. We learned that he couldn't read. The guy in his late 50s, and he was still unable to read. And so he be, he became a Christian by coming to our gatherings, and and he would um, he basically would take the Bible and listen to the audio version of the Bible and follow along and basically learn how to read by memorizing the words of the Bible. That's how he learned how to read. And uh, we just became such good friends. Um, he desired to be baptized. And let me tell you, there's nothing more scary than having a person with no legs getting baptized. Um, I almost drowned him, true story, because you don't understand um, how much that affects your ability to balance underwater. Uh, but thank Lord he didn't uh, drown. Um, and so, man, me and Christmas had such a special relationship. We spent the next three years, I had the opportunity to disciple him. But let me tell you, there was absolutely no reason that me and him, he and I would have been friends. Uh, different ages, different ethnicities, different economic class, different politics, different struggles, different set of friends, different neighborhoods. There was so much that would say me and, me and Christmas should have never been friends. And uh, Christmas did, did go on to pass on Christmas Day of all days, um, a year and a half ago. And man, I'm, I cannot think of one person I'm going to be more excited to meet in heaven. I'm definitely going to challenge him to a foot race in his glorified legs. Um, he'll, be, he'll remind me of that time I almost killed him in a, in a swimming pool. Um, but that's the thing that we have to understand, that only Christ can unite us, truly unite us, because if we're, if we're trying to be united on all these other things, it's, just, it's, not, it's not what God desires for us. He wants our unity to be, to be found in him. Let's move on with James here. It says this, Is it not this, that your passions are at war with you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Uh, James here is like, you almost, when you're reading this, you have to kind of pause for a second because he just says, you desire and so you murder. It's like, whoa, that, that escalated quickly. Um, so we have to understand, like, what causes someone to reach that point where they're willing to murder? Um, it has to be because they desire something so greatly that they're willing to throw off whatever constraints there are to accomplish what their desire is. That misplaced love in something so much that you'd be willing to kill for it. Then he goes on to say, you want something so bad that you you can't get it, so you fight and you quarrel. What James is, ha- is saying here, that we have these expectations of God, that, that he's this kind of this divine vending machine, and so we desire that he's going to give us all these things, and we don't, when we don't get what we truly want, and when he doesn't give us those things, we take our frustrations and our unmet expectations out on others. And then he says, James says this, you want something so bad that you don't receive it. 
There's a reason for this. The reason that we don't receive it is because either we didn't ask God for it in the first place, or truly because our motives, our desires, um, our inside evil is basically keeping the Lord from approving that and blessing those wicked desires. He then goes on to say, uh, James says this, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now, it might seem that James is kind of changing the subject here because he's talking about being friends with the world and, and enemies with God. And th- this is what he is truly conveying here is that our conflict that's happening in the church community is actually a marker that we have more in common with the world than we do with God. It's actually like an indicator that says, whoa, here, like something's off here completely. That common unity that I referenced earlier, James is saying that you have less in common with Christ and more in common with the world's way than you think you do. He even goes so far as to say friendship with the world and that, he's, that we are enemies with God because of it. And so he's arguing that this fighting is the, is the way of the culture. It's the way of the world. This world's way of doing things, this world's way of existing, and our conflict is that marker that when we're choosing things, we're actually making ourselves an enemy of God in the process. Uh, One commentator, Dr. Stephen Rung, wrote this in reference to these verses, who would intentionally make themselves God's enemy? And that is precisely the point that James is making here. He wants us to clearly understand the implications and consequences of our decisions, Although we may believe that indulging our desires is innocuous, doing so can have dire spiritual consequences. Understanding this can deter us from giving in to sinful desires and help us to consider the outcome of our decisions. Think about that for a moment. We, we, can, we can actually find ourselves living in this, spiritually living in this odd dynamic where we are frenemies with God, right? Where we, are, we say we're friends with God, and yet he says... No, you're not. You're actually my enemy. You're actually doing things that are opposed to me. That's a very dangerous place for us to find ourselves because, brothers and sisters, God has called us as his children, as his church, to live much differently than the world. He calls us to live counterculturally in that way that we're not marked by our uniformity, but by our unity. God's desire is for our unity, not our uniformity. In other words, Jesus doesn't expect us to look the same, belong to the same class, vote the same, act the same, or agree the same. Because you can still be in disagreement with one another and still walk in unity. There's a line there, but you can definitely do that because our unity is found in Jesus Christ. He wishes not for us to be clones of one another, but for us to be clones of him. And so as we're Thinking of John 17 here, um, where Jesus uh, has his prayer right before he is betrayed and, and tried and murder, uh, murdered, he, is, uh, he prays. And it's, it's a recorded prayer of Jesus called the High Priestly Prayer. And this is special because he's praying for me and you. He's praying for us as believers. He's not praying for what is going on currently. He's praying for us, all of these believers. This is, what he, this is, what, this is his prayer. My prayer is not for the world but for those that you have given me, because they belong to you. All who are mine belong to you, and you have given them to me, so they bring me glory. 
and head to verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world hates them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. And I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so that they can be made holy by your truth. I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for, uh, but also for all who will ever be believe in me through their message. I want us to pay attention to these next few verses. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. I am in them, and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Jesus' desire for us is that we would walk in unity with one another, not just because we're a family of brothers and sisters, which is true, but because living in unity is actually us being able to shout to the unbelieving world that Jesus is the Messiah. Because our unity like us being friends and united with people who have nothing in common with us is very powerful because it shows to the unbelieving world that Jesus is truly who he says he is. Now, there's, there's two ways that community can exist, and it can be destroyed uh, by these two things. James here masterf- masterfully uh, says in, in chapter 4 here that community is destroyed when we join the community and then we spend all of our energy just kind of fighting with one another. But there's another way that we can destroy community. Did you know that? It's by not being a part of it. It's by not being a part of it in the first place. Um, and we may do that because of, you know, we're too busy, we're in a busy stage of life, or it's inconvenient, or maybe it's just too personal, or whatever that looks like. But you can destroy community by not even being a part of it. Let me explain. There's there's uh, literally dozens, hundreds of one another passages, one another passages in the New Testament. This is where Peter and Paul and the New Testament writers uh, uh, advise the church in how to treat one another. And uh, I'll give us a few here. I'm not going to give all the biblical references for time, but um, these are some of the one another passages that um, I pulled out for us to think, think on today, ponder on. Love one another. Honor one another. Live in harmony with one another. Build up one another. Admonish one another. Care for one another. Serve one another. Forgive one another. Bear one another's burdens. Be patient with one another. Comfort one another. Encourage one another. Stir up one another to good works. Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Pray for one another. And confess to one another. And that just, again, that scratches the surface on the one and other verses. But that's the point that I want to drive home for us today, is that we can't fully walk in the ways of Christ unless we're around his people. Because um, let's be honest, if, if this is our experience in, in church community, week in and week out, if this, this Sunday gathering is it for us, we're missing out because we're not in that, that maybe five minutes afterwards, five, five minutes beforehand. Uh, are we truly able to love one another? Are we truly able to forgive one another in that short period of time? 
Are we, are we able to pray for one another and comfort one another, encourage one another? Are we able to admonish one another? Are we able to serve one another? Like We can't really fully do it in that little bit of period of time. We, we do need the opportunities throughout the week to open our doors to hospitality. We do need that opportunity to get into the messiness of one another's lives and pray for one another and, and, and just drop in and, and help out and serve one another and encourage one another. We, we need that. That's, that's what our, our life should be like as believers. We should be seeking this close-knit community where we have one another's back because we're brothers and sisters. That's what brothers and sisters do. We look out for one another. Now, I, I spoke earlier about this conflict that happens in the church and the reason behind it, and James goes a little bit deeper here in the, in the verses to follow. We, we look at verses 6 through 10, and it allows us to see this deeper reason on why we may find conflict with one another. Read with verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit your th- Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Uh, we'll, do, we'll do really well as a church to really just think on, ponder, meditate on verse 6 there because it doesn't matter what wrongs that you have committed. It doesn't matter the quantity or the quality of sins that you've committed because he gives more grace, verse 6. The whole of the Bible can be summed up in that statement that he gives more grace for us. His desire for us is to be redeemed and restored and forgiven if we would only stop resisting him, resisting his grace for us. Because as long as you have breath in your lungs, that is, is, that is his desire for you and I today, to give more grace. To quote the prophet Isaiah, surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. And then we read in the, the rest of the verse 6, in which James is, is echoing, a, uh, he's, he's, he's referring back to Proverbs 3.34, which says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And when we think of pride, we, we often think of kind of arrogance or, or cockiness. Um, there's a level of truth to that, but the deeper level of understanding with pride is that we, we are living in self-sufficiency, that we believe that we're enough. And pride affects our relationships vertically with God, but it also affects our relationships horizontally with one another. Because we're so willing to openly fight with others in the church community is because on a deeper level, our self-sufficiency says we don't really need them. But in a humility, we, we, we actually know that we need one another. We, we need every single person in this room that the Lord has given us as brothers and sisters. He's given us those people in our lives. He's given us, he's given us that community. And this pride speaks to a more serious problem in that we trust truly in ourselves. And that's the basis of pride again, that we are self-sufficient, that I alone am sufficient. That's not God's way for his people. Uh, Jesus addressed this uh, more closely in one of his parables that he gave in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. And Jesus said this, um, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went to the temple to pray, 
One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I receive. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus kind of reiterates this truth for us. Luke drives this point home when he writes that Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Uh, the Pharisees were the uh, kind of the pinnacle of righteousness. That's the way it was, they were understood by the masses, by the people. They, they, they tried to keep the law to the purest form that they could. And this prayer that the Pharisee is offering, there's no hint that he's being insincere, that he's being hypocritical, that he's lying in his prayer. He could have been completely honest with his assessment in his prayer. But that was the issue, that he was only focused on every other person. His, his comparison was on him and other people. I am a lot better than these people. I'm a lot better than those people. I'm, thank God I'm not like that guy. That was, his, that was his level of comparison. Whereas the tax collector here, he sees himself in comparison with God. When you see the fullness of, of that righteousness and the perfection and holiness that goodness in comparison to, to our vile wickedness, to our filthy righteousness, that forces us to humility. That's what he wants for his church to be, a people marked by humility rather than pride. And we need to ask ourselves, what are we comparing ourselves to as a people, as individuals? What am I comparing myself to? Because if I'm comparing myself to the person that's sitting next to me or the person uh, that you know that you have difficulty with, that your relationship is tense because you guys just don't get along very well, is it because we're comparing ourselves to others and so we, we end up feeling, well, I, I handled this situation right or they're in the wrong because they handled this wrong? Are we always going back to the table saying, God, I, I am a messed up person. I have screwed up so many times. I need you. You, you have to help me. There's a place of true humility that happens when we compare ourselves to God and not to other people. And again, that's James' plea for us today as well. He reminds us that Jesus gives grace to the humble and he opposes the proud. And, but we choose ultimately what path we're going to take here. Because will we draw near to him? Will we, will we seek after him? Will we stop trying to be the hero of our own story? Will we, will we stop resisting God and, and instead choose to resist the devil's plan for our life? Will we live lives that are absent of his grace? Will we, will we humble ourselves before him or we choose to be self-sufficient that I'm alone I'm enough? And lastly, as we look at the final part of our passage here today in, in, in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, uh, again, sometimes when you're reading this, it can kind of seem like they're detached, but they're really not. Um, James here is really just threading the needle on what conflict looks like within the church and, and how it needs to be handled. Verses 11 and 12 here, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, 
he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? We must stop speaking evil against one another. Now, if there is some kind of abuse or vile wickedness or criminality that's taking place within the church, you know, that needs to be brought fully to light. I don't believe it is, but that's not really what James is referencing here. He's saying to stop making, stop trying to make everyone out to be criminals. Stop trying to, uh, stop spreading lies about one another. Stop gossiping about one another. Things that you don't really know that are fully accurate. Instead, what we need to do is look out the window. Uh, instead of, instead of rather, instead of looking out the window every day, looking at every single person's faults, what we need to do is actually look in a mirror and look within. We, we must move away from self-justification to self-examination is what James is saying here. We must move away from our self-justification. We're trying to justify our actions. We're trying to justify our relationship with God. We're trying to justify why we're, we are sufficient in and of ourselves. And we must really look in the mirror and self-examine ourselves and say, man, how did I screw this up so badly? How did I create conflict in this situation? How did I, how did I mess this up? Lord, help me to see the, the ways that I have contributed to this conflict that's happening. Because we all have a tendency to kind of see what's best in ourselves while trying to see what's worse in the other person. And that's the work of pride in our lives. And that's something that the Lord must work on his people with. We must humbly go before him and repent. We must rewire our brains to not see people as adversaries in the body of Christ, but to see them as truly brothers and sisters. They're going to frustrate us sometimes. They're going to aggravate us. But they're also there to push us on, to encourage us, to grow us in the ways of Christ. And that must be what unites us, Christ. Not our politics, not our opinions, not our class, not our educational level, Christ. So how do we apply this as people of God? Like I said earlier, this may be something that you need to save, put in your back pocket, save it for a rainy day. Um, But if you're currently dealing with conflict, if you're currently dealing with tension with your brother or sister in Christ, um, just reminded of these two passages from Jesus. In Matthew 5, verses 23 through 24, he says this. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. And secondly, from Matthew 18, verses 21 through 22, then Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? Jesus replied, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Um, again, if there's some kind of abuse or wickedness or anything like that in the church, I'll call the police with you. That, like, again, I don't think, I don't think that's going to be something that is here for us today. But if it is, uh, we're, we're there for you. But if there is this conflict, this hurt, this resentment, this unforgiveness, Christ tells us that we must seek reconciliation with the other person. We must do that. Our, the unity is at stake here. And I pray that we would do that, that we would run to the other person and that we would try to work out any tension that exists among us. Not for ourselves, even though it's great that we can be restored to one another, for the reputation of Christ, for his unity and for his fame. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, um, 
message is, is not fun to hear. It's not fun to preach. Um, I just pray that if there is conflict that exists among your people, that you would help us. That you would be in the midst of us. That you would hold our hands, Lord. That you would um, give us the words to say and that you would help us to be forgiving. You would help us to walk in humility. That we would not cling hold to pride, but that we would cling, cling tightly to humility. I pray that you would unify your church around you, Lord. We want to be so desperately united with you, Lord. We want your spirit to live among us. Help us. Because everything else is fighting for that pedestal in our lives, Lord. Help us to be united and centered wholly around you, Lord, I pray.